0: Welcome to the Break Your Bullshit Box podcast where excuses aren't tolerated and results are earned through authenticity, vulnerability, and a commitment to excellence. My name is Amber Furman, success architect, attorney, and NLP trainer. If you're ready to bitch slap the bully in your brain, overcome the bullshit that holds you back, and design the life and success you've always wanted, then it's time for you to break your bullshit box and step into designing life and success on your terms. Welcome to the Break Your Bullshit Box podcast. I'm really excited for my guest today, Frederick. Bussie. And we're just going to go ahead and dig straight into this so that we have the most amount of time to get to know him and all of the amazingness that he has to share with us. So, Frederick, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing amazing, Amber. Great to be with you.
0: Good. Thank you so much for coming on with me. Um, We met a little over a year ago in Dallas, and I feel like this recording and conversation is way overdue. So I appreciate you making the time.
1: Absolutely. Actually, I think it was two years ago, wasn't it?
0: Was it two years? It was two years ago. You're right. God, time flies. It's been forever.
1: I don't want you to short me on, on, on the timeline, how long I've known you.
0: <laughs> I know, right? Well, it's been full of amazingness, whatever it is. So um, yeah. let's start by letting people get to know you just a little bit. So I always like to go back to somewhere like teenage time. If you were to talk to your teenage self, what mm did that person think that you were going to be doing today?
1: Teenage years were very formative. Um, And I'll actually, my, my story, when I tell people, it actually kind of starts around there. So when I was around 14 or 15, uh, one of my best friends, my best friend at the time, uh, he and his brother and myself, we started a singing group. Um, we both grew up in a church. We were preachers' kids, um, all of us, and uh, I had a love of music. He had more ambition than I did at the time. His dream was to drive Ferraris and ride, in, well, to ride in limousines and be a rock star, famous. You know, he wanted to be famous, and uh, but I loved music. I loved singing in groups. I grew up with a love of harmony, and uh, that began the journey right there. You told me then that I was going to be doing what I'd be doing now, um, I wouldn't have believed it. I had a desire to be, I was curious about entrepreneurship and business, but I always thought of a business person as someone who wore a suit and had a briefcase. And that was it. I didn't know anything else about that. At 15 years old, if you'd asked me what I'd be doing, I'd say I'd still be writing and producing music. Um, I would have been Babyface or Timberland. (laughs) Or Puff Daddy Somewhere, somewhere yeah. in that mix That's who I would have been
0: When did you make the transition And stop or or did you stop I guess is the better question Writing and producing music Or do you still do that
1: So I don't do that professionally anymore um, Although I still am creative And I still do write songs um, From time to time I used to write a song a day I oh, Really? A, I haven't yeah, I've, I've, i probably in my lifetime. I estimate I've written somewhere around eight thousand songs or so.
0: That's so, amazing. I love the songwriter world. It's a whole world that people don't really know exist, and I think it's fantastic.
1: It is amazing. It is amazing, and uh, to see so many of the new songwriters that are coming out because I, I still um, have connections with the music industry and some um, partnerships over there as well. So to be able to see what it has kind of evolved into, uh, it's kind of cool. And i I'm always a fan. Uh, well, I'm always fascinated by the, the process of creativity and things like that. I talk about it in my book and, uh, I, I say that I don't do something differently. Now I do the same thing that I've always done. I just do it in a different way, uh, which is essentially to translate meaning, right? A songwriter's job in my, in my experience, is to be able to take something that is true and to say it in such a way that it resonates really, really deeply, right? So it's something that we feel is true and we get the feeling of the truth, not just the knowledge of it. Mm-hmm. And what I do in the when I work with entrepreneurs is kind of take the opposite. I take something that feels true and then I help them to uncover and reveal what actually is true. And so it's still translating meaning, but it's kind of been reversed from the way that I used to do it creatively.
0: That's a really interesting way to look at it. Um, and that was going to be my next question. So you kind of read my mind um, because I see a lot of parallels in the songwriting mm. industry in the business world. Um, and, you know, the songwriting industry for me is purely as a consumer. Um, I've never been involved in the music industry, although I've been toying around with the idea of doing like entertainment law. Um, I'm working on deciding whether I want to apply to the state bar in Nashville and make that shift. Um, but for me, I love it so much. And I know there's a business behind the music that I'm not sure Mm -hmm. I'm ready to see, um, because I, it's, it's my happy place. Um, (laughs) but from what I know about it, I see so many correlations between songwriting and and business and and for me one of those big correlations is the willingness to put something out into the world that is you and your heart and your creation and your mm-hmm. truth and mm-hmm. put it out for people to consume and right. judge you based upon that because everybody will and the mm-hmm. willingness to do it anyways and stand up to criticism. Um, that's when I fell in love with the songwriting industry is when I started podcasting and I could make that correlation.
1: Hmm. I think that's, uh, that's spot on. So in, some, in many ways, because there's so much content that gets put out now and you if, you if you hear people who talk about putting out content, they talk about the fact that you just got to put out a lot. It's about volume. Um, and you can't prejudge what you put out. Yes, you want to get, you want to put out great content, but at the same time, it's, it's difficult to know what great, great really means, right? Great is relative. And a lot of times when we prejudge things, then we are kind of hoping that people will, we want people to think it's perfect. Mm -hmm. We are not willing to put it out before it's perfect, but the only way to make it resonate is to be, is to have the willingness to put it out whether it's perfect or not in your eyes, whatever perfect means. And I think in a lot of ways, it's a very much a parallel for how a lot of people move in business, how a lot of people move in life, you know, the the desire to perfect it before they put it out. And it's not about not just having high standards, but it's also about understanding that perfect is relative and that, you know, done is better than perfect. If Mark Zuckerberg had waited till Facebook was perfect before he ever launched it, you know, we still wouldn't have it. We still wouldn't have it, you know? Um, and then you'd have, we'd be on version 13 of MySpace by now, whatever that looks like. So,
0: <laughs> oh, God you know. help us. <laughs> um, for for those really, really young listeners, well, really, really young, for those listeners that are in like your 20s, oh, yeah. um, MySpace was so long ago. Like I, I was just scrolling TikTok and watching a video where somebody was talking about um, the belief that, Older generations need to stay off social media, and he was like, "We created <laughs> social media, like we we right. literally created the internet." Um, and he was going through all of the things. It was it was a blast from the past for sure. Um, but I think what you just said is incredibly important, not only because. Um, it's true, but also because our definition of perfect and somebody else's definition of perfect is completely different. And I know that every business owner or content creator out there has had the experience where you put something out and you're like, this is awful, but done is better than perfect. And then that thing is the one that people reach out to you. Like my most listened to episode of my podcast is awful, and I tried to re-record it so that the audio was better. It was before mm. I knew what I was doing and the wrong audio source was selected. And so it's sound the, the sound quality is horrible. The content's great. Um, mm. And I, I tried to re-record it with better audio and nobody listened. So it's like we put it out there and it resonates with people, even though it's not perfect. Mm. And if we never put that out, we would never get those connections.
1: There's something that I talk about um, in my content. now, you know, we're in the age of AI. Um, But I I talk a lot about this other version of AI, which is authentic intelligence. Right. And people talk a lot about authenticity and things of that nature. But so I'll give you an example. There's a, there's a comedian, she had a special on Netflix and forgive me, I forget her name, but she talked about how um, she, she actually showed how she went to this uh, factories, this robotics factory where they were, they make um, androids and they make humanoid versions of them. Right. And so they were talking about as they're uh, creating it, they talk about the fact that they have to create asymmetry on purpose because That is the thing. When you look at um, an Android or uh, a robot, the thing that freaks people out about it is that it's perfectly symmetrical, right? And if you look at a human face, you know, our eyes aren't perfectly shaped on on either side of our nose. Our nose is a little bit twisted to the left or to the right. You know, our teeth are maybe slightly crooked, like perfection actually freaks us out. And so this desire that we have as human beings to be perfect actually works against us In most ways, you know, we have all the filters and all the different things that, you know, we want people to perceive us through when in reality, the most powerful thing about you is the genuine Mm. article, you know, the real you. And so that authentic intelligence, the thing that is at your core can shine through when you're not trying to filter it through this lens of perfection and through this pre-manufactured ideal that you have in your head that doesn't really connect with other people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I talk about this in my book and and you mentioned mm-hmm. your book as well, which is fantastic. We're gonna tell people where to get that. Um, since you brought this up, I talk about it in my book that we hide all the things that we think bring us shame and mm-hmm. guilt and imperfectness. and And so much of our desire for professional success is because Mm -hmm. we think that that's going to compensate for what we think makes us less than personally or um, in some of any of the experiences that we've had that are Mm trauma-based. When if we were to show those things more, that's where true human connection comes from. And that's where people can relate to us. Sometimes people can't relate to our successes as well as they can relate to the struggles to get to those successes. And I think that's so Mm -hmm. important for people to remember.
1: No, 100%. It's funny. I wrote an article, uh, not an article, but I I had a post on Facebook today and I was talking about uh, the fact that for a lot of high performers, achievement equals love, Mm -hmm. right? And so we're always in this constant pursuit of this ideal version. So when I am perfect, when I have achieved this thing, then I will be worthy of love, right? And the fact of the matter is, of course, that's not true, but it feels true. And the feeling is what drives us, right? And the, feel, the thought behind the feeling that I, I'm not enough, I'm not worthy enough, but I can I can make it just a little bit more money. I can get another award. I can get another promotion. I can, I can level up my business, whatever that looks like, whatever perfection or, or achievement looks like in your world, that's where we tend to be driven towards. And then we get there and you get to the top of that mountain and it's not enough. And you don't know why it's not enough. And- if you can learn to accept the fact that your perfection is not about flawlessness, it's about being complete that you have already have everything that you need, that you already are enough. If You can accept that and can, and you can create from there, whatever that looks like that actually allows you to be so much more powerful, infinitely more powerful because you're not moving towards this ideal of, of of something that you can never be. Right. And how many of us, Have have tried to to do that, especially if you're a a high achiever, high performer. Like I know that you are, Amber, because (laughs) we've had conversations and we've talked, right? But I, I know that looking at you and what you've done, not even not even personally, but so many attorneys, so many doctors are those people. Because why would you put yourself subject yourself through the the rigor of becoming this, unless you had this idea that? Once I'm there, once I get this degree, once I get this certification, once I get this 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 piece of paper that licenses me and tells me that I am worthy, right? I'm one of the rare ones who could ever accomplish this thing, and you believe it, and you get there. And how many of your colleagues, and I know I know you you probably share it in 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 your book and on your podcast, and you talk about the fact that you know you've been transparent about the fact that you have had those struggles dealing with this. How many attorneys do we know? How many doctors do we know that are utterly miserable at what they do because they they did it for all the wrong reasons?
0: Oh, more than not. 100% Mm -hmm. more than not. I mean, the biggest thing that I hear, and this is part of the reason that I'm on the mission that I'm on. One of the biggest things that I hear is, well, I get to retire in 10 years or 15 years, Mm -hmm. and then I can go do what Mm -hmm. it was, right? Well, we're constantly chasing whatever that is, that's going to make us happy or worth it or whatever. And the idea that it's such a cliche and it drives me nuts, but it's true. That happiness is a choice is so 100% real. Like when Mm. I have this, I'll be happy. When I have this, I'll be worthy. Happy and worthy are choices. They're decisions that we make. And it's interesting that you say that because we're both connected to, um, you know Michael Faber, right? Are you yeah. are you yeah. yeah? So we're both connected with Michael. And Michael and I did a podcast interview a couple of years ago. And it's still mm-hmm. one of my favorite podcast interviews because part of what connected Michael and I so much was that when we first talked, we had such a similar background. We had mm-hmm. we both had suicides in our family. We had both lost our dads at a young age. We both had like if you stripped our identities where we were from and you just looked at some of our trauma based points, you Mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to tell the difference between us. Yet Mm -hmm. I went to law school and he's been very open about his history of drug addiction and recovering from that. And now he's a very successful business owner. But Mm -hmm. people would look at me and call me successful because I went to law school. They would look at Mm -hmm. him and call him a failure because he became a drug addict and almost went to jail. Yet we were running from the exact same thing. It was the same thing that drove us both. And I think Mm -hmm. that gets lost in so many conversations that the social acceptableness, yes, that's a word, I just created it, um, (laughs) of... High academic and professional achievement that mm-hmm. that justifies the means of trying to outrun our trauma with those things, and eventually it never fails. That ends up being there. There comes a point where that's not enough, and it's normally what society knows knows as a midlife crisis.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. You said a couple of things there that that I want to touch on one of those being about happiness right uh, people say happiness is an inside job I think one of the one of the things that we one of the lies or myths that we have been sold is the idea that happiness is the goal of life The reason being is because happiness is not something that you can ever keep right mm. I, I always make the analogy that Let's say that you say you feel like if I won the lottery, if I won the mega Powerball for $2 billion, I will be happy for the rest of my life. Let's say that you won, that you actually did win. And then the day that you won, your mother died. Would you still be happy, right? And so what you realize that happiness is so fleeting, it can be instantly snatched away. The thing that I've learned is that what we should be, what we should be in pursuit of, is not happiness, but peace.
0: Mm.
1: You know, and the Bible talks about this. You know that you know you have a peace that passes all understanding. Well, the reason why it passes all understanding is because people feel like you can't be at peace if you're not happy, right? But hap- if you happiness is like an ultimate high, so there are highs and lows, right? And I, I, I heard someone make this analogy said, you know, in life, there's a high and low, there's so many highs and lows, but what is a heartbeat when you look at a heartbeat monitor, but it goes up and down mm. up and down. And that all that does all the ups and downs that you know that you're alive. But the constant is that the, that everything moves forward and that can give you peace. Right. And when you have peace, you operate in clarity. You're clear about what you want, you're clear about who you are you're clear about what your contribution is to the world what matters to you and I think that's where we we all want really we really want significance and we think we're chasing happiness and happiness is so fleeting and so elusive that you're just it's like chasing the squirrels right through the forest, and you can't ever you can't ever attain that you may get it for a second and it's gonna get away so yeah. I, yeah. I, I, and I love, I wanted to touch on one other thing you said about the trauma, right? Um, how it drives us. And I I could relate to that as well, because even though I did grow up with my father, my father came from a broken home. It affected our relationship growing up. And um, we have a good relationship now, but I realized that a lot of the things that I was driven from was a lack of a certain insecurity. So when I talked about wanting to, you know, go into the music business, it was always with this thought in the back of my mind that, oh, if I'm up on stage winning Grammys, oh, if I had these million dollar houses and I'm driving these really fancy cars, then people will suddenly see me because I felt invisible. I felt like I was not someone that was especially handsome, especially talented, whatever the case may be. I just knew how to write songs. And so maybe that would put me on a platform to be able to be Recognized by the world. And the thing about it is, you can never write a song that's never not going to, you know, if you write a number one hit a week later or a few weeks later, somebody else is going to write another one hit. If you, no matter what you do, nothing is going to be immortal, always the greatest, always the best, always front of mind for people. You're going to have to learn how to adapt and move through a world where your insecurities are going to be a real thing, right? How do you navigate that? And so you have to learn to find the peace and the inner peace that allows you to be able to move forward and continually develop and be your best.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the things that we are constantly talking about when we talk about the idea of toxic positivity, right? Um, I think, first of all, there's a difference between positive and happiness. And I don't think that that gets... um, I don't think that gets discussed enough that you Mm -hmm. can be positive and not happy at the same time, um, because you're right. Happiness is this fleeting, like, and on the other side of happy, the sadness side of it, one of the most dangerous things that happens, especially in this day and age of everybody being so quick to put a label on everything um, is that when you have those moments where, you're sad or, um, a little nostalgic or something to that effect. We forget those are human emotions that just because you feel sad doesn't mean that needs to have a label or a diagnosis or anything like that put on it. Um, but we start to think like, I don't feel happy and the world tells me I should be happy so there's something wrong with me. Um, and then on top of that, so much of our lessons, and you know this, we've talked about this before, so much of our lessons that we learn come from some of the mistakes that we've made, the trauma that we've had, what are the lessons that we can learn from every experience in our life? But because we have this toxic positivity culture, we're not trained to focus on those lessons because that requires us to step back and say, what could I have done different? And Mm -hmm. the fault based nature of some of the conversations we have today, combined with the toxic positivity of um, we're not allowed to talk about the things that make us less than happy because we've got to be positive, prevent us from learning the lessons that are going to allow us to scale our life and business. 100%.
1: 100%. Uh, I think w- another one of the the myths that we have is this belief that we're always supposed to be happy mm-hmm. and that we're never supposed to be unhappy. But if you look at, if you've ever seen an emotion wheel, right, there are dozens of emotions. And so happiness is just one. How can you stay in life and experience the fullness of what life is if you're only in this one degree of emotion, right? And the other thing that I like to talk about so with my kids, right? We talk about the fact that emotions are not facts, they're just signals, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whenever I say that to my son, my son starts I, I say I tell him it's like an alarm that's telling you that something is happening. And so he likes to go beep 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 every time I say that. But emotions are not facts, they're signals, which means that they're signals of a thought your emotions is caused by a thought. What is the thought that is causing this emotion? And when you start to see it as a signal, you start to be able to read yourself and the world around yes. you differently. What is it telling me that I need to be responding to in a certain way? So we don't have to react, but we get to respond. We don't get to we don't have to be triggered as everybody likes to say, right? But we can be activated. We can yeah. move into action. We can activate a new reality or actualize a new reality that we want for ourselves, but we can only do that when we are actually aware of what's happening. And so if we're always in pursuit of this one emotion, then we become very narrowly focused, very, uh, we walk around with blinders on and we actually exhaust ourselves because we're actually missing all of the other things, all the other ways that are, that we are able to be able to experience life, to be able to grow and develop, when it comes to our businesses, right? We, we have those blind spots and if we're only, I can only win in this area and we only have this one way of winning and we lose out on all the other ways that we could be expanding and, and being able to be a better leader, Mm -hmm. uh, more, more powerful, more higher performing in what we, we create and what we accomplish, because we're not so stuck in this one vein of achievement.
0: Absolutely. So um, before we went down the happiness rabbit hole, which is always a <laughs> rabbit hole that's worth going down, um, you had mentioned your book. What's the title of your book?
1: The book is called Breaking Orbit, Rip Out of the Regular by Unearthing the Power Within.
0: No, I love that so much. And what was, is this your first book?
1: It's my first book, yes.
0: Okay. What was the um, moment that you decided that you wanted to, to write a book that you wanted to write a book and you felt like you had something to share with the world. What did that look like for you?
1: So those were different moments. Okay, um, I wanted to write a book for a number of years. I've, I've been a writer. Well, so I've been a writer probably since I was 12 years old before I was writing songs, I was writing stories. I used to be in sci-fi, uh, writing science fiction, a uh, blend between, uh, Conan the barbarian and, and star Wars or, uh, somewhere in that range. So I loved writing stories for as long as I can remember. As I got older and I became an entrepreneur and things of that nature, after I left the music business, I wanted to be able to start writing books. And initially I was thinking, well, I need to be able to write a marketing book or, you know, I've got a marketing agency or, or write about business business in some way. And I can't, I couldn't really figure out what niche I wanted to, to work on, uh, what what I had to contribute, I didn't really know that I had anything to contribute, and it's funny because that was actually one of the catalysts. I had hired a business coach, uh, a sales coach, Brian Ryder, and uh, Brian gave me an exercise where he said, "I want you to, I want you to come up with your solution for your customers. Like, what's mm-hmm. what's your solution?" And so I banged around on that thing for like a week, and I couldn't come up with it. And so I eventually sent him a message back, tucked my tail between my legs, and said, Hey man, I don't, I don't think I have a solution. And his answer is what like blew my mind and changed my life forever, really. And he said, God doesn't make people without solutions.
0: Ooh.
1: So when he said that, it's like a bomb went off in my head. And it sent me down this rabbit hole of really discovering in the group, for instance, in his coaching program, he would often use the phrase, uh, you know, using your gift, using your gift. And so we would say that, but I said, well, what is a gift? What does that really mean? And a lot of people use that word uh, in many different ways. They have different meanings, but I really wanted to explore what that means. So if I have a gift, if I have a solution, God gave it to me. What does that mean? How do I discover it? How come no no one ever told me what it was? How do I how would I describe this, or help someone else to discover what that means? And so I went down that path. It took me about a year writing this book, numerous conversations, some of which actually ended up in the book, um, and really breaking that whole thing apart. And what it what it revealed for me was that uh, we have the key, the catalyst. When I talk about this piece being able to be at peace is when you know that you are actually complete, that you came Mm -hmm. complete with everything you need to succeed in this world. And that what we've been taught is that we have to pursue this, all these different pieces to be able to complete ourselves when in reality we already are. And the only thing we need to do is connect to the gift that we have been created with and the source of that gift.
0: I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that so much. And the idea of, the fact that no person exists without gifts and solutions is so Mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so important. So when you went through the process of actually releasing this out into the world, um, Mm -hmm. what did that process look like for you? Um, I know mine was this up and down of progress and installing did you hire a book coach or did you do it yourself um what were the the lessons I guess is what I'm trying to ask what were the biggest lessons you learned from releasing the book
1: so a couple were really important and they're actually lessons I I had heard before but I didn't really get to activate them until I started working on the book and there were two things one I believe it's Ryan Holiday who wrote um there's a book called Perennial Seller, right? And okay. it talks about, you know, the all, why all the greatest books in history have been perennial sellers, right? So it's not- Yeah, the, Ryan just, just the Holiday. Governor. Ryan Holiday, yeah. So the, the concept behind it is just that there are certain timeless things that go in timeless lessons. And so you don't want to write a book that only focuses on the now. Like for instance, somebody who's written a book about AI, right? It may be a bestseller for a week or two. In in a month or a year or 10 years, it may not even be relevant because it can be the next thing, quantum computing or whatever. But if you write books that have timeless lessons, that have timeless language, that refer to people throughout history or lessons that any person at any point in time could pick up that book and read, you look at Napoleon Hill's books, for instance, right? They were written nearly 100 years ago some of them, and the lessons that he he, he uh, extracted are, are nearly 100 years old. But the wisdom is timeless. It could have been written in the time of Socrates or Plato. And so I wanted to be able to do that. And so part of it that allowed me to be able to um, not fixate on being so relevant for the time was that, okay, I want to write a book that no matter who reads it, whenever they read it, it's always going to be valuable for them the next piece of advice I got was that write a book that you would not get tired of talking about for two or three years straight. Right. And I actually wrote the book five years ago, released it about four years ago now. So, but I still talk about the book because the one thing I was able to realize was that every time I introduce the book to someone, it's brand new to them. It's mm-hmm. a brand new concept to them. They've never read it before. And if I wrote a perennial seller, you know, whether you have um, outwitting the, outwitting the devil or Thinking and grow rich. There's always people that are discovering that. And if you can talk about that book for the rest of your life, with the same amount of passion, then you can continue to promote it. And then the third piece of advice that I got uh, was around perfectionism, right? A writer's block. And it hit me, I was probably two or three chapters in. And what I realized was that the reason why people get writer's block kind of goes all the way back to what we were talking about at the beginning. It's the desire to affect the outcome in other people's mind before we release it. So I, I was comparing my writing to the writing of all these great books that I love so much. Isn't so that mind, the
0: worst?
1: It's, it, and it's an impossible standard. You mm-hmm. can't compare because you're writing it in the moment, right? So once I was able to release that standard of, it has to be like Seth Godin, or it has to be like Gary V or it has to, you know, whatever. First of all, those, those guys had, you know, editors that were editing and perfecting and polishing these books for months, if not years before they released it. Secondly, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks about a book. They'll never get to think anything if I don't release it right? And there's always going to be someone who's not going to like it, someone who's not going to get it. But for the people that it's written for, it will be everything and they need it. And so knowing that it's necessary, knowing that what you're doing is necessary, raises the standard, raises the level of your performance, but it also releases you from the obligation for it to be perfect before you can release it. And so that really helped me to continue to write it, just knowing that I don't don't edit it and write it at the same time. Editing mm-hmm. comes later, right? Get it all out, get it finished. And then you begin the 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 act of sculpting and polishing and chipping away until it becomes what it needs to be. And even now I go back and look at the book, you know, there's still things that I would want to change. I intentionally do not go back and edit it. People point out certain errors. I'm like, yeah, I know, right? And my wife will say, you know, you should you know fix this. But I don't do that because if I do that with that one, I'll never write the next book.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And I'll never get out all the other things I have to say, because I'll constantly be wanting to tinker. And I'm a tinkerer. (laughs) I I want it to be as great as it possibly can be. But the key that I've learned is that it only has to be as great as it can be in that moment. I love that. And so as I get better and better, as we get better and better, our level raises... But at a certain point, it can only be as great as you are in that moment. You can't be, you know, you can't be the heavyweight champion when you're an amateur, but you can be the greatest amateur that you can be until you go pro. And then when you turn pro, then you raise your level. And when you become the champ, well, you do your best to keep that. You, You do what was required, not just to win the title, but to maintain it. And if you lose it, you know what it takes to get it back, right? And so giving yourself that freedom and forgiveness, I think is a really, really important. important I
0: think it is. And, and, And there's something else too that I think is so incredibly important about allowing that piece of work to stay there is if we were to constantly update it based upon the lessons that we have now and the information that we have now and what we wish was different, the people that could relate to who we were back then won't be able to relate to us. Um, I talk about this often when it comes to people being on stages. And they say, look at all Mm -hmm. these amazing people on stages. You've got, you know, you mentioned your Gary V's, your Seth Godin's. You've got all of these people that stand on stage and are these amazing business owners and entrepreneurs that have scaled their businesses successfully. You also have people who have gone through horrific life events that have become the picture of courage for us. People who've had to learn how to walk again, people who take away our excuses for why we can't do things. Um, And then you have, you know, the me's and the use of the world that have never Mm -hmm. had to go through any of that. Although we have our own trauma in and of ourselves. Um, And, I fell into the trap for so long of why would anybody want to see me on stage? What do I mm-hmm. have to say that these mm-hmm. people don't? And I, I learned really quickly that there's a lot of people in the world that can relate to me that can't relate to a Gary V because they, they can never imagine that type of success for themselves yet. I become the stepping stone for them to right. that next person and that next person. Well, our books – they are our stepping stones to us now. So if there's a person in our life mm-hmm. that can't relate to who we are right now because we've grown, but then there's mm-hmm. this book out there that we wrote when we weren't us now, we were us 10 years ago. Right, They get to relate to that, to leapfrog, to who we are now. And if we constantly updated, we would never have that, that leapfrog moment.
1: That's really, really good. That's a really, really great insight. Uh, the leapfrog. Um and a stepping stone. That's yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna be borrowing that for sure. I please I think, And I think I think what people forget too, like I was thinking about this the other day, the fact that we idolize people at the top so much, and we forget about all the other rungs in the ladder before there. And when I say rungs, I mean there are people, right? So if you idolize Warren Buffett and Elon Musk, and everybody wants to be there, but only so there's only room at the top for a few because the top is the top and the, and the top rotates in terms of who's worked the most or whatever the case may be. But in the meantime, what's keeping you from getting closer, right? And a lot of times the things keep you from getting closer. is learning all the lessons that you can learn along the way, which come from, like you said, people that are in between. There's a version of you that you have to be before you can be the next Elon Musk or the Elon Musk version of yourself. Right? Yeah. And we never get there if we never give ourselves permission to be less than that on the way to becoming all that we can be. So I I love that, the stepping stone idea. It's so true.
0: It's so true. Um, We just got a comment from Brittany. Um, She said, no matter what you think, someone can always benefit from your life experiences. And I truly believe that truly believe that we all have, you know, I, the very first conference that I went to, I heard a speaker on stage, um, and this quote has stuck with me and he said there, we, the world needs multiple messengers for the same message. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the answer that I needed for why would anybody want to talk to me? Now that was Amber five years ago when she Mm -hmm. didn't think she had anything worth saying to the world. Um, Now, obviously I know that's complete bullshit. So, Um, so your book, what's that?
1: You broke that box. (laughs) I
0: did break that box. Um, So your book is available on Amazon. Um, As far as, so we talked about you growing up and where you are now getting to where you are now, what is it that you love about what you get to do now? What keeps you engaged in the life that you've currently built?
1: So two things. Uh, One is pretty simple, which is that that, uh, in working with entrepreneurs, I get to help them turn the lights on in a dark room all the time, right? So there's a whenever we have a problem, it's like walking into this room and we can't find the light switch. And so I get to kind of help direct them through the process to be able to flip on the light. And then once they flip on the light and their eyes widen and they, it's not just, Oh, I found the answer. It's that they see all the possibilities in that room. Now. In fact, it's almost like realizing that you thought you walked into a dark room and actually you walked outside of the house. And now there's an entire world out there. Right, And it's like this you, you help the sun to rise on all of their dreams and all the things that they thought were not possible because they were locked inside this dark container in their mind. The other thing that keeps me going is, and this is related to the book, is the fact that I know I'm walking in my gift. Um, there's, there is freedom and peace in knowing that you are doing what you are meant to do because you are being who you are meant to be right and so coaching is one aspect of me showing up i tell people coaching is not who i am it's what i do it's something a tool that i use it's one of the tools to help to translate meaning for people uh, but and that that is part of my gift and so if i know if i'm walking in my gift every single day then i am going to be successful because i am being successful i am being who i was created to be and so um As any entrepreneur, I get shiny object syndrome. There's things like, oh, I want to go do that. Oh, that would be cool to do, right? But being able to be centered and remember this is who I am. And so if if that is for me, it will present itself as a way for me to do that, but through who I am and not as me going to pursue this as a way of proving I can do this thing or trying to get more money or trying to do whatever. It's, it's, It's about the act of being. And so uh, that's why I love having conversations like this with people like you and just being able to share and, and, and help people to be able to expand their own thoughts because that's part of who I am.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love that so much. Um, and what does the future hold? So when you look to five years from now, what mm. is the same about what you're doing now and what's different?
1: I would say that the same is me still walking in my gift, right? So what I've determined is that I will never not be doing something that is who I am, right? So I will never not be um, speaking, translating, writing, creating, communicating. I will always be doing that in some, in some form. Um, What's different. You know, I don't, I don't know what's going to be different, I just know that it will be. I mean, five years ago, I wouldn't have imagined that life is the way that it is now. You know, five years ago, I wasn't even coaching Um, as a, quote unquote, I didn't have the coaching business. I was I had a marketing agency. I was seeing the world very differently, but I was starting to make that shift to realize that there there might be something else that I was starting to move into. And so I have goals, Um, but I think that most importantly being able to let go of what I think it needs to be is probably the thing that um, I want to be able to maintain. Right. So that letting go of that uh, there's nothing to hold you back more than the thought of who you're supposed to be.
0: Ain't that the truth. Yeah. Um, I think that that is kind of the place that we all aspire to be or could aspire to be is the ability to set goals Mm -hmm. and the ability to desire to achieve those goals Mm -hmm. and be focused on them while Mm -hmm. also being open to the possibility that something better than we ever could have imagined could present itself and staying focused and open to possibilities all at the same time. It's this sweet spot of being able to have a life that we can't currently imagine. And I think that's so important because it's, it's where the shiny object object syndrome and goal setting meet, right? We've got to be able to have the shiny object syndrome to notice the things that we wouldn't notice if we had tunnel vision on our goals Yet we also have to know what's worth taking action on and what's not.
1: I think. I think a lot of us get stuck because we we're we don't actually live in the world of possibilities. We live in the world of hoping mm. that it's possible. When you live in a Which world really different. Yet yeah, when you when you know that the possibilities exist, but you don't. You don't need the realization of every possibility to be fulfilled. Right. So I know that it's possible for somebody to own 30 yachts and 100 Lamborghinis. I don't need 100 Lamborghinis and 30 yachts to be fulfilled. But I can hold out the, but I can hold two things in my mind at the same time. I know that if I am fully realizing who I am, it's possible for me to have those things. And so I'm not closing off those possibilities, but I'm leaning into who I am, knowing that I'm already complete. And so the things that we're we're, we're trying to unlock is that is the idea that because we don't believe that it's possible, it actually does not become possible for us. And for me, one of the hardest things I had to do a lot of times was that I didn't believe that su- I believe that success was possible for everyone except for me.
0: Mm. And once
1: I learned to lean into my gift, or once I realized, oh, success is just you being who you were created to be. Like, there's only one of me. There's only one of you, right? You are a singular individual, powerful in your own unique makeup. No one can be you and and you are absolutely necessary for the purpose for which you were created but most of us don't feel necessary we feel optional we f- and we're hoping that somebody will choose us and by choosing us they will tell us that what we are is meaningful that we have significance and when you learn that you already have a gift you're already created with a purpose Now you can step into that and allows you to be able to unlock those possibilities that were completely closed off from you before because you didn't even think that they, that was a door that you could walk through. Not only do you have the key, right? Not only do you have the key, but that door has your name on it.
0: Yeah. You know, there's two things that you said that were just, powerhouse the one that was flat out said was that most of us don't feel necessary we feel optional which is i've never heard anybody say it like that before um mm. and that is so 100 true we there's so many times that we allow ourselves to say well somebody else can do it better What's the purpose of me being here? What do I bring to the table? Would anybody notice if I was, you know, if I was missing, I was actually just having this conversation with somebody the other day um, on the topic of suicidal thoughts. And I said, you know, I've Mm. never had suicidal thoughts at the same time. There have definitely been times in my life where I've questioned whether if I wasn't here, if anybody would notice. Mm, And Um, to me, those are two different things. And that's the, the, like, that's what I think of when I think of feeling optional instead of necessary. Like, the world needs every single human being that was put here for a reason. Mm-hmm. And when people think of that, they're like, they are necessary in this world. They're necessary in the e- ecosystem that they create and that they're put in, known as their family and friends, to make sure that you know, it's completely different without them there. Um, And so I love that so much. The other thing that you talked about that I think plagues people and lives in their head way too much is that success is possible for everybody else. That Mm -hmm. of course it's possible for somebody to own 30 yachts, but that somebody isn't me. It's not possible for me to do that. And as soon as we realize that, you know, this is one of my favorite parts of Mark Manson's Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck is the, what are we willing to put the effort into to obtain? There's nothing that's different between, you know, this person and us, except they wanted something bad enough to put the effort in to get it. And they had skills and resources that maybe came more natural to them that we would have had to learn. Um, But that doesn't mean that that success isn't available to us if we wanted it. And I think that that's so incredibly important to remember.
1: This is a really important point. And when you talk about the possibilities, right? Nothing will close off the possibilities faster than believing that you are not enough, that you don't have enough. When I when I start to work with entrepreneurs, no matter how successful they are, there's always a part of them that has discounted their own gift, their own abilities, their own resources. Because the way that our minds work, we tend to... It's funny, our brains are not actually cr- equipped to compute a negative, yet we tend to focus on the negative, hyper-focus on the negative exclusively. So if we have a problem, we literally couldn't see the solution if it was surrounded, if they were surrounding the problem because all we focus on is the problem. It's like having a a completely white shirt on, right? And then you go to a barbecue and there's one small fleck of barbecue that gets on your shirt and you want to change the entire shirt. Like, this is ruined. Literally, there's one one thousandth of a percent of of the fabric, but that's what we focus on. And when you talk about how we believe that, oh, that person that has 30 yachts, I can never do that. In reality, in reality, the fact is, it's completely possible if you shift your perspective, if you realize that, who do I know, Like right? If you start reverse engineering the process, if I wanted to create a business or create the opportunity to have the wealth to have that, what would it take? And then you start compiling those pieces and the framework that I've been able to lean into is one that I was given to my coach, Richard Pierce, and he talks about the difference between a goal and a mission, right? And that everybody needs at least three missions in their life. And the missions can change. They won't always be the same. but the difference between a mission is a goal that is a goal is arbitrary, and a mission is mandatory. So goals are things that we can set up and we can say, I will accomplish that. I won't accomplish that. I might accomplish that. It's, it's optional, right? The goal is not the point. As, as uh, Gary Keller says, the point of a goal is to keep you appropriate in the moment. So, that you know, it's like a milestone. You know, that you're on course, a mission is something that you will absolutely do everything in your power to accomplish. Failure is not an option. It has to be done. And so most people don't have missions, they have goals. The goals are based on comparisonism. The goals are compa- based on what they think they should have. They, they, we create goals based on what we think are realistic, you know, which is the death of any achievement in and of itself.
0: You know, because the there's,
1: no, there's no greater limiter than that. Well, I just want to be realistic. And how many times have we heard, said that to ourselves, you know, let's not get crazy here. Let's be realistic. But the people who do the most amazing things in the world are never held to these limits in their mind. They have a mission and the mission is mandatory. And if you're living your life on purpose, you are out to fulfill a mission. There's nothing that can stop you. You know, as I like to say, if the why is big enough, the how doesn't matter. And we often focus on the how. I don't see how. No focus on why. Why is this matter? Yeah. It's about it's about. It's not about the chances of success. It's about what's at stake if you don't succeed.
0: Absolutely. I love that. Um, On that note, I feel like you and I could talk all day long about this. And there have been times that we have, um, when, when we met and God, we had the best, the best lunch. And I felt like it was like this kindred spirit that I had met that just got it. So I love the insight that you have given today. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, if somebody wanted to continue this conversation with you, connect with you either to learn more about your coaching, to learn more about you as a person or, um, to grab your book, what's the best way for them to reach out to you?
1: Yeah. So first of all, thank you for having me, Amber. Um, I love this conversation. I love when we get to go deep on these things. Uh, Hopefully we didn't go over people's heads or go too deep for them. Uh, They're
0: used to it, right?
1: They are. Um, If you want to connect with me, frederickbussey.com is a website. I hang out mainly on Facebook. Uh, I have a free Facebook group for entrepreneurs called the Seven Figure Circle Million Dollar Mastermind. Uh, we've got a ton of free trainings, master classes, and resources for entrepreneurs who want to multiply their profits while shrinking the time that they have to work each week. Um, you can send me a message over there on Facebook as well. I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, Frederick.bussey, um, on Twitter, X or Threads. Yeah, it's Twitter's thread X now. I'm on Threads, uh Frederick Bussy. Uh even TikTok, although I'm hardly ever there. But uh, I would say hit me up on, uh, on Facebook. Join the group. Awesome. I would tell people to join the group.
0: Perfect. And we'll go ahead and put those links in the show notes as well for when this is released. Brittany says she could listen to us all day long. So I appreciate that, Brittany. You're amazing. Um, thank it's you Brittany. so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today.
1: It's been my honor. Thank you, Amber.